Hello and welcome to the We Are Habs podcast, the show that lifts the lid on some of the old girls and boys who, after leaving haberdashers, have made their mark on the world. Now, as an old Habs boy, uh, I'm actually going to have the tables turned on me today as the host becomes guest. And I'm very pleased to introduce Robert Curtis, uh, the We Are Habs executive producer and CEO and founder of Pipe Global and alumnipodcasts.com as today's guest host. Uh, Robert, over to you. Thank you, Elliot. So as you've just heard, my guest today is Elliot Gotkin, not only the regular host of this podcast, but an accomplished TV news correspondent, journalist, presenter and master of ceremonies. Over the past two decades, you may have seen him on your screens or emceeing an international event. Elliot has reported for some of the world's most well-known news outlets, including Bloomberg, the BBC and CNN, reporting on politics, current affairs and business as well as interviewing world leaders and billionaires like Hugo Chavez, Shimon Perez, Patrick Drahi, and Sheldon Adelson. Elliot Gotkin, welcome to the We All Haves podcast. It's very nice and very strange uh, to be here in the same chair, but in a different metaphorical seat. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, I'd certainly feel the pressure because you've done an absolutely incredible job interviewing some really incredible guests over the course of the first season of the podcast so um i have the uh the the honor of wrapping up the season with with you so let's dive first of all into your career before we talk about your experiences at Habs. Um, as i mentioned in the intro there you are a very accomplished journalist and tv news presenter and um i'd like to just go back go back in time and tell us a little bit more about how you entered the world of journalism and and got your first break on tv as a correspondent so first of all, I should say that given some of the guests we've had on on here, I do feel somewhat unworthy of uh, being in their company, but I, I very much appreciate uh, the opportunity. Uh, as a journalist, you know, you're not kind of used to talking about oneself and anyone who knows me will know how shy and unassuming I am. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't actually know that I wanted to be a journalist or didn't decide that I wanted to do that until the kind of tail end of uh, my university career. I was at uh, the University of Nottingham where I studied geography, which, of course, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone's seen Avenue Q. There's a song there about what do you do with a BA in English? You know, what do you do with a BA in geography? Uh, most people think you're going to be a teacher, explain it to Americans, and it's usually kind of, you know, geography? Why do you want to study geography? Um, or they expect you to have studied journalism, which I actually almost did. Um, but by the time I was going to do the kind of uh, um, post-grad in um, journalism at City University, I already had a job as a journalist, so I decided not to do it. But uh, the very start was... I mean, I graduated in 98 and uh, I was kind of leaning towards that. And I was actually um, in synagogue one Yom Kippur and someone asked me, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, I was thinking of journalism. He said, oh, you should speak to that guy over there. And that guy over there was Richard Quest, who's a bit of a legend in TV news land. Of course, he's with CNN now. At the time, he was at the BBC. I went over and had a chat with him and he suggested I write off to a few news organizations. Uh, I followed his advice and then got a job as a runner at London News Network, which does London Tonight. Um, at the time, Mary Nightingale, Alistair Stewart were the presenters, main presenters there. And uh, a runner, for those that don't know, is basically the lowest of the low. You are the one that makes the tea, you <laughs> hand the scripts to the presenters, you uh, bring the guests in uh, from reception and take them up uh, to the studio. I mean, I did meet some very interesting people. Um, I remember meeting uh, the band Squeeze, actually, that one time they were going in. And um, I don't know, for those of you who are old enough to remember Squeeze, one of the most famous songs is called uh, Up the Junction. And uh, there was a line in it, 
And I never really understood, and this was before you could get lyrics to songs anywhere. And I'm just double checking them uh, now. And there was a line in it, uh, in Up the Junction, which goes, you know, uh, uh, something like this morning at 4.50, I took her rather nifty. And I thought the next line was round two, a naked painter. And I never understood why it made sense because he's talking about uh, how his uh, girlfriend, his wife was pregnant and then she was about to give birth and it didn't make sense. And so I said to them, I said, like, I never understood that. Like, how come, you know, you say round two, a naked painter. They said, no, 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 round two, into an incubator. And they said, but your line would have made much, would have been, you know, much, made much, been much more fun. So I got to speak to Squeeze and then um, Brian Blessed, Beverly Craven, some kind of interesting people. And I remember one time, actually, I was taking the script to Mary Nightingale and I was like, it was like, you know, really right before they, she was about to start speaking live to camera. And I ran in there with my scripts and she screams, no! And I kind of stopped immediately. And then literally a split second later, she's completely calm and just talking to the camera. Incredible uh, professional and really, you know, amazing to see someone like that in action. Uh, and another time, I think it was um, Nick uh, Kershaw, the singer, and uh, he'd just done a performance in the studio there. And I was showing him out the building and I shook hands with his publicist to say, you know, thank you. And then uh, I went to shake his hand and he was already kind of walking out. And she's like, you know, Nick, you know, shake the guy's hand. And uh, he turns around, but he was already in the revolving, you know, door. Oh, no. And he oh, sticks no. his hand out. I hope it wasn't the hand he uses to play the guitar. Sticks his hand out to shake my hand and then gets kind of trapped uh, in the door. Um, but uh, other than that, um, that was quite a good experience. I then got a job as a trainee journalist at Euromoney uh, Publications. Excuse the sirens going by. There's a main road not too far from here. Uh, uh, went uh, Euromoney uh, Publications on the International uh, Financial Law Review. Uh, and so they often, they often, their their kind of whole business model, which worked very well, it seems, is to get you know smart graduates, um, pay them very little, but give them you know a lot of. Uh, responsibility and it was very good training. Uh, I actually took a pay cut. Imagine taking you're you're a runner, you're the lowest of the low at London News Network. I think I was on twelve thousand pounds a year, and then I went to Euro Money as a trainee journalist on nine thousand pounds a year. So I was there for three months, and then I got a job uh, which I just saw the ad. Uh, I know that that's very rare to do these days, but I saw the ad uh, in the Guardian for a stock market reporter at a new financial news website called UKInvest.com. Wrote off to them. It was then headed by Clive Woolman, um, who was who was the founder of Financial News, very well-known uh, business journalist. I think he then went on to become a barrister, and um, and he was the the guy in charge there. And I got hired uh, to be a stock market writer at UKinvest.com. It was just at the time of the dot-com boom, kind of ninety-nine, two thousand. So you're reporting all these crazy things going on in the world of finance, um, but nothing was crazier than this company itself, which was. Parent company was called globalnetfinancial.com. It was listed on NASDAQ and it, the shares just went through the roof like everything else. And every day uh, we would turn up to work and we would see this kind of, you know, traditional chauffeur with his peaked cap and everything else standing next to this kind of beautiful kind of uh, silvery blue Rolls Royce. And this was the car uh, driven by Stan, Stanley, the, the boss, I can't remember his surname. And I also remember every day a fax would come through on the machine. This is when we were still using faxes and a fax would come through with his wife's schedule for the day, which inevitably, inevitably involved trips to the manicurist or having her hair done or going to the theater or something. And literally, that was it every day. And uh, no surprise that this company lost a shed load of money. Um, one or two friends of mine uh, kind of managed to sell their stock before everything kind of came crashing down to earth. Um, I mean, it was a fun experience. It was a bit crazy. Um, but it was, you know, 
a really amazing time to be a writer. And you kind of, you know, I think journalism is one of those things you learn by doing. It's not like you can't obviously be a surgeon just like, you know, by practicing on, on people who are alive, obviously, or I guess you practice on on uh, on dead bodies and the like. But, but you know, being a journalist is something you improve, you get better at by doing. And it was but amazing. But these, these were written journalism so you were crafting yeah, your written. trade in terms of the the written word how did you segue from that into obviously then finding yourself in front of the camera reporting on situations around the world business money and and the like so i always liked speaking uh, i thought that i was you know okay at it um and i wanted to be on tv and so i actually had a friend called nick cosgrove who was at the time a producer at the bbc who a friend of a friend put me in touch with and uh he kind of recommended me to the editors there and i had an interview um a guy called john fryer and, and peter eustace both uh interviewed me and you have an incredible memory for names that, i well if i met you at a party i would forget your name like two seconds later <laughs> but you know i worked with them for, for a while and um then i got a job as a as a broadcast journalist at the bbc and uh but i still wasn't getting any opportunities to to be in front of the camera which is what i really wanted to do and um and so one night uh peter grester who's quite well known now unfortunately because he was one of the al jazeera journalists who were detained in egypt for uh, quite some time he was the bbc south america correspondent and at the time argentina had its debt default which was the biggest debt default in the world i think it was like 100 billion dollars or something and i had i was on the night shift and he was sending a piece to be played out and so for the business programs which i was working on so i took it in and i emailed him said thank you and if there's ever, ever any opportunity to come out there and work in south america i speak spanish uh, i know a lot about the region you know um i'd loved it i'd love it and he said okay we'll speak to claire marshall who's now quite a well-known bbc correspondent i think um who had just come back from uh, peru and speak to peter burden who was the world assignments editor who now i think runs a consultancy focused on africa um and maybe they can help. So I spoke to both of them. Claire gave me some advice about Peru. Uh, Peter had said the only place there could be an opportunity was as a stringer or a freelancer in Lima. So I spoke to Claire. I spoke to Peter Burden. They were happy for me to go out there. Managed to persuade my bosses to give me years unpaid leave to go out as a freelancer. And um, I had the right to kind of call myself the BBC's correspondent. And off I went to Peru, like a kind of reverse Paddington bear. And... Um, <laughs> turned up there and you know I, I had to pinch myself this was kind of what I really wanted to do and the most amazing moment for me was that at Habs doing my A-levels uh, including Spanish uh, as part of my Spanish A-level I had to study Mario Vargas Llosa uh, the Nobel Prize winning novelist uh, mm -hmm. may have heard of uh, works such as uh, The Feast of the Goat or Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter which was made into a film and which is my favorite and I had to interview him for I can't remember which program it was, but it was for the World Service uh, Radio. And so there I am in his beautiful apartment in Barranco, which is kind of bohemian part of Lima. Uh, you've got kind of original kind of uh, Picasso sketches on the walls. And here I am interviewing Mario Vargas Llosa for the BBC, just, this is in 2002. Uh, so what is that? So uh, eight years after I was studying him, for my Spanish A-level. And I really had to just pinch myself because that was the kind of peak, pinnacle of my career. I just couldn't believe it. And I was But just... uh, to, start, to time stamp it, you were, what, 26 years old at this stage? 2002, I would have been 20, 20, yeah, I was, I literally just turned um, 27. 
Wow. How does how does it work when you get um, sent to these you know foreign locations as a journalist, as a presenter? You're in you know you start in Lima and then you head off to Buenos Aires, and in the end you you spend just over three years there, I believe. Um, how does it work in terms of building your network in a new location where you're reporting on events on the ground there? How do you build that? Obviously, you had the benefit of obviously speaking Spanish, but uh, which is presumably a big reason why you you were were sent there. But um, how does that work? I guess it works somewhat differently now, and it depends on the size of the bureau or the place that you're going to. So when I went to Lima, there's no bureau there. I was literally, you know, recording stuff from my apartment. I had my mini disc and my microphone, and those were my tools. Now, if there was like a really big story the BBC would organize a camera uh, crew or a, a, a truck uh, to do lives. That never, that happened, I think, on one or two occasions. Uh, a tragic uh, half-British couple, uh, I think one of their, um, the, the, the woman and the, the, one of the children had drowned in a river in, in um, near Cusco in Peru. And uh, so I did stuff for BBC Breakfast, which was kind of, you know, the network. Like the, that was a kind of, seemed to be a higher, um, higher profile than the B than BBC world or, or so if there were a big big enough story they would arrange for you for to have um let's say a fixer um and someone else uh, and perhaps a camera crew but other than that I was generally on my own so I would say suggest things to them oh I saw this story's happening or this is going to happen or there might be a big trial coming up some things are kind of fixed and you know that's going to be a story of interest to them or Often they would call you, oh, we've seen this on Reuters or Associated Press. Can you do a, a one minute kind of recording of this or something? Or um, you would kind of get a sense. You always knew that if you're going to get an interview with the president or something like that, that it was going to you know, be something that they were interested in. So, uh, you, you know, there are organizations like the Foreign Press Association and the like. Um, and... Uh, and you know, and you would, and you would kind of build your network at that. Other were journey. you immersing yourself in in the culture and the people and the networks there? Yeah, presumably. very much so. I um, mean, the Foreign Press Association, or I think in Peru, is called the APEP, the Association of uh, Asociación de Periodistas Extranjeros in Peru. Um, so that was uh, very helpful. And then you know, you could also tap the kind of previous person that was there for contacts and things like that. And gradually, you know, you would know who the camera people are that you could use and they would know people and you would kind of build things. But generally you would know, like in a place like Peru, you know, the BBC isn't going to care about, you know, things that let's say are newsworthy for Peru. But there might be an interesting story, uh, whether it's elections or whether it's the, uh, the president finally uh, admitting to being the father of his illegitimate, illegitimate daughter or something or, you know, different stories or like things on the uh, drug trade. I went to kind of an area which, which is kind of per acre grows the most cocaine or most coca leaf in the world. And there was one interesting story and I'm really kick myself of one of the, my regrets. I don't remember a while ago, there was a great Wall Street Journal story in Afghanistan. It was like the last two Jews in Afghanistan, in Kabul, before the Taliban first took over. And they were completely at loggerheads. They hated each other. And it was just this like really funny story about these kind of two old Jewish uh, Afghan men kind of fighting each other. And they were like the last two left in the country. And so in Peru, I was doing a story on the drug trade um, and I was speaking to the kind of person from the United Nations uh, main drug agency. And he was on one side of the valley. And actually, the leader of the coca growers on the other side of the valley was his brother. And I kicked myself today for not realizing that that was the story instead of just doing <laughs> a general story on coca growers in Peru. Um, but, you know, sometimes there were kind of quirky, kind of strange stories that were happening that were of interest. 
I remember doing one story on uh, on how uh, mushing, uh, or was it mushing, uh, on the beach with huskies was like something that was happening. I managed to persuade them to take a story on that. But a lot of the time, you know, sometimes there's a massive story, like the Japanese embassy siege, which I think James Reynolds, uh, who was there at the time, you know, you get a massive story and that really helps you make your name. Nothing like that really happened in Peru. But uh, thank God I did enough to help me get the South America correspondent job, which was like a salaried position in a bureau in Buenos Aires, covering the whole region aside from um, aside from Brazil and Paraguay. And uh, and yeah, and, and even there, because Latin America, no one really cares about it that much outside of the region. It's not so, there's not like wars or coups generally going on there. So, uh, and it's not like rich enough that it's going to kind of affect the global economy in the way that, say, you know, and it's not as close to home as kind of European countries. And so, to be, put it mildly, there wasn't that much interest in the story. And I remember, like, the biggest opportunity I had was when Maradona was in hospital in Buenos Aires. He was at death's door. And I did a live, uh, for, they actually hired a truck, a satellite truck, which is something they very seldom did uh, for me. Um, and uh, they said to me, okay, if Maradona dies, we want you live on the 10 o'clock news. And that was going to be like my big break. And he didn't <laughs> so die. So you're Obviously, praying he for <laughs> something to happen. <laughs> I mean, he died, what, a couple of years ago, right? But, uh, but at the time, that was kind of, you know, one of the biggest uh, stories. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity um, and, you know, had a great, time and great experience um and then i mean south, Amer south america obviously is often associated with the narcotics trade and that's often how you you know us in the west think of that location um you mentioned the story there in peru with the two sort of drug cartels um with my sort well, of netflix cartel. they weren't cartels i should say they were just because you are you are legally allowed to grow the coca leaf it does have traditional use in Peru and Colombia. Interesting. Did you ever feel threatened in that situation? Because of you know, I don't know if you've seen the TV show Net Narcos. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the reporter gets blown up because she's getting too close to the story. Um, you know, did you ever feel that uh, in at any time in your career you were heading into stories or reporting on things that maybe were a little a little bit too close to comfort? So first of all, you know, generally uh, I have uh, an inherent instinct for self-preservation. So I try not to put myself in harm's way. Uh, I mean, here reporting in Israel, um, I, I just never really wanted to go into Gaza, for example. Um, and I, I, I have never done so. But um, but no, I mean, if you're I mean, I had arranged the trip with one of the kind of coca leaders. Again, we're not talking about Pablo Escobar here. We're talking about a leader of the Coca Growers Association, which was not an illegal thing. And growing the coca leaf was not something that was inherently illegal. The illegal part happens when they sell it on to people that are then going to, to make uh, uh, drugs. But as I say, there is a, a very strong uh, traditional usage of, of the coca leaf, particularly in Peru and Bolivia, but less so in Colombia, um, which is why it's kind of like a controversial thing like is it for traditional use is it for and for for you know drug use and uh you know interestingly there are kind of uses of uh coca in medicines and um food and drink even in the us but um you know such were such was the war on drugs that it was very hard for peru let's say to develop um legal ways of taking advantage of the coca leaf because at the end of the day the people growing it they just want to make a living and those who are trying to make a living, they would happily grow coffee or cacao or whatever it was if it made them more money. And the fact sure. that it doesn't is, you know, a perennial problem. 
So fast forward to today, you are now living in Israel, you're CNN reporter for um, Israel and the Middle East. And among other things, I know that you um, host your own podcast called the F in Tech podcast. Um, you're also the um, MC for various um, global forums, trade events, and uh, um, both virtually and in person, given what's happened because of Corona. For those listening in, and, and I've got another question on this that I'll ask you afterwards. Um, for those listening in, thinking about journalism and reporting, um, particularly using using video and camera, how would you say you've honed your skills over the years to do this? It's not an easy thing to do. Just even being still on camera and being able to just share share what you want to say is is an art form in itself. What are the sort of I guess top tips for someone who's looking to not be one of the sort of you know citizen journalists as I call them, but someone who wants to actually do this as a as a profession for an outlet. So uh, as you say, I, I freelance for CNN. I'm so I, I do kind of various stints when when they need me, um, but I'm not a, a staff uh, correspondent or anything there. Uh, I, to be perfectly honest, I think that with journalism, it is something that the more you do it, the better you get. Um, and obviously it's wonderful to report for a major news network, but most people would start in local news or they would start, you know, uh, in, in a, at a place that is, let's say, let's, let's high profile. And I mean, I won't, uh, you know, name names here, but uh, there is, for example, uh, in Israel, there is a, a news channel, the quality of which I think is not so wonderful, but it's a good place for someone to hone their skills because you get, you know, in a, in a smaller pond, you're going to be a bigger fish, you're going to get more opportunities. Um, so I think practicing, I think working hard, I think having a mentor or someone that you can ask uh, advice of um, to help you. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's good to just throw yourself in at the deep end. But in this day and age, I mean, you talk about citizen journalists, you know, whether it's people recording stuff on TikTok or Instagram or whatever, I think that there are so many opportunities to really just practice and kind of if it's something that you really want to do, to really try to do it in a way that you want and develop your own style and develop your own ways of doing things and, and, and your own, you know, focus. Uh, you know, I was always interested in, in current affairs and especially international affairs. Uh, I was always interested in Latin America and the Middle East in particular. And I think, you know, having knowledge is great, kind of, you know, making sure that you read around, whether it's books, magazines, whatever. I think speaking the language, which I don't do well enough here in Israel, is also very important. And that was invaluable when I was in um, Latin America. Um, but it is a very capricious business. If you want to make it at a BBC, CNN kind of thing, um, it's, it's not always a fact that, you know, if you are the best and most knowledgeable person, that you will get the best position or the job that you want. Sometimes people get there because they're pushier, sometimes uh, because they're, um, they, they look a certain way or they tick certain boxes. It is a capricious business. Um, but if it's something that you really want to do, uh, then go for it. I mean, there's no reason why it shouldn't be you and it should be someone else. I think I think that's interesting, particularly in light of what you know what we term citizen journalism. There's some you know very big names, particularly in America, like Tim Pool, for example, who's you know a man in his bedroom who's built this you know mega podcast that has millions of listeners every day. Do, do you do you feel that there is, um, I guess, a, 
a role for everybody to play in reporting this this not even citizen journalism this this almost trash journalism that is is constant on on social media but at the same time we're seeing you know ratings of you know the, the traditional news outlets decline rapidly um people want their own version and flavor of what they believe almost in their own echo chamber is is there a role for you know the what I call traditional BBC style journalism of the old days, which was you know presenting all the facts, both sides, giving you know the best, honest reporting as they can, um, and everybody else can make up their mind. We live very in a very polarized world today. So does does that work when you have news channels that really should be you know very factual? Look, I don't think that factual means boring or stodgy or anything else like that, and and clearly. News networks need to ensure that they are engaging with, you know, millennials and, and whoever else uh, are, are turning away. Um, I think one thing that, you know, your BBCs or your Bloomberg, CNBC, CNN, what have you have still, despite all of, you know, the noise around fake news and all the other kind of information overload that people are suffering is they have trust for the most part. Now, I mean, I speak to, you know, friends here, intelligent smart worldly friends and you know one was telling me kind of oh yeah but the line's blurring between kind of you know what you can trust and what you can't and i'm not sure that that's true i think that perhaps there is um an element of difficulty in getting across the message that you know what you hear from this news outlet is more truthful that you can trust the New York Times more than you can, let's say a Breitbart or something that someone posts on Facebook. But the problem now, and we're seeing this in particular with regards to vaccines, is that you do have, you know, it is so easy for people, um, you know, in otherwise intelligent, smart people to be sucked in and, get, and fall into these rabbit holes uh, and feel that they have the evidence to show that, you know, vaccines don't work or that, you know, children are dying from vaccines or whatever the case may be, when factually that is not the case. And so certainly as someone that has always worked for news outlets that are trustworthy, um, that do their best to be objective. And yes, you know, there are things, people, you can still be factual and by omission of certain other facts, present a slightly partisan view. And I know that news coming out of of, of Israel and this part of the world in particular um, arouses passions and, and controversy. Uh, but I think that, you know, for the most part, your traditional news outlets do still carry, um, you know, uh, the, the, the benefit of trust um, and reliability and also professionalism. And but that's not to say that, you know, you by all means, you know, make podcasts on certain subjects on particular niches and let everybody have their say everybody should have a voice and, and i think that's great um but i think that when it comes to you know fact and reliability that you know these things need to be earned um and they've been earned over decades and, and many many years at these news outlets and sure there are people out there who will be talking about stuff uh whether it's their opinion or whether they are presenting you know opinions as facts or presenting, for want of a better phrase, alternative facts or lies. Um, there's, there's everything that's out there. Um, but uh, I guess the, I guess the, the nuance is, I don't know how much you've been following the recent Joe Rogan controversy oh, that's yes. happening in the States. So uh, the, the difference perhaps between, say, Elliot Gotkin and Joe Rogan is that you are actually a journalist. $100 million. So, <laughs> yeah, also not to mention the bank account, but um, you are a journalist, you're a trained journalist, you understand how to develop a story 
and perhaps also push back against guests or you know people you're interviewing with the other side the devil's advocate side i think what joe rogan's trying to do is he's not he's not claiming to be a journalist he has these people on his show these very long like three hour mega shows and maybe he, a he doesn't have the facts to push back um or he is just about getting that part of the story out i think what's interesting and for me is that his sort of or the attempt by others to de-platform him at the moment is the equivalent of you interviewing somebody and being responsible for what they say. I think that's what's interesting here. It's not him, it's not Joe that has said these things. It was whoever his guests were um, to talk about it. I find that this this is playing into this this mistrust, this disinformation. Who can we really trust anymore? And maybe there needs to be a renaissance of that traditional, strong journalism. Look, I don't think that, the, the two can't exist uh, together. I mean, at the end of the day, Spotify has paid, well, $100 million to Joe Rogan. Uh, and it's an it's entertainment. It's a, it's a show. It doesn't claim to be a news show. It doesn't claim to be factual. But obviously, with so many people listening, it can have an influence. And I think if you were, let's say, at a traditional news network, are you going to have some of those guests on? Maybe. Um, and are you going to be prepared to push back on the kind of things that you know they're going to talk about, whether it is vaccine disinformation or anything else. And, you know, uh, again, I don't have enough of an insight into Joe Rogan's mind to know where he he, his, he stands in particular. I'm not about to start going so deeply into it. But, you know, I think, you know, when people are actually dying, um, I spoke to a friend recently who's you know, whose mother, uh, you know, died because she was, you know, people around her had told her about not to take the vaccine, whatever. Uh, you know, people are dying because of this misinformation. And this is where it gets dangerous and where I get so angry with people who start kind of, you know, spouting things, these kind of untruths. And there does need to be a responsibility, especially for someone with such a huge amount of influence and such a huge audience. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't have these people on and they, they shouldn't speak, but, uh, and I'm sure Spotify is looking into this now and, and the, in the way that, you know, Facebook or others have, you know, warnings that this has been found to be untruthful or, you know, this is, you know, factually incorrect or whatever the case may be. And we can have a whole discussion about who should be the arbiters of truth and whatever else. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, there need to be, let's say, warnings attached to people that are, uh, that maybe are coming on, um, or if not warnings, just have it made clear that this view is, let's say, against the, uh, you know, scientific community, whether it's, you know, climate change, uh, global warming denial, or whether it's, you know, vaccine denial, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think there are ways to, to do these and to do them responsibly. Uh, again, I don't have enough of an insight into what his particular stance is. Um, but I think that there certainly is a responsibility when you do have such a big audience to ensure that the audience is aware of the context for what's being discussed. So, look, I think this is a nice segue into a perhaps less controversial podcast, which is the We Are Habs podcast that you have uh, kindly hosted over recent weeks. And uh, um, I think 
the thing that I've noticed from all of the interviews of some really incredible VIP alumni who have shared their stories is that everybody seems to have really valued the quality of their education and time at Habs. And they all feel that they um, have benefited in their years from the the experiences that they had the opportunities that they were given uh, with the beauty of hindsight they can see that that's played a role as a result of having been through Habs so first of all have you enjoyed um you know launching season one uh for We Are Habs I have and uh you know it's been really it's always wonderful to have the opportunity to speak to really interesting people um and I never think it was Rishar was the first person that we had on um uh, and uh, Simon Sharma was I think just the one uh, before perhaps before this one and to speak with someone who is not only so eloquent and so you know famous well known but so accomplished in their career you know it's really um it's a bit disheartening actually because I mean I I you know have ambitions to kind of write to books and stuff and you kind of come up against someone like <laughs> Simon Sharma and you're just like well what's the point you know um because it's never going to be that good so no it's been great fun and I'm happy uh, to have had this opportunity and um to uh have shared um you know uh the thoughts of, of these incredible people um with with our audience what are your overall memories of being at Habs Gosh, my overall memories. Uh, <laughs> high, high level. I, I know that your brother also attended there. I think he is, he uh, he left a couple of years before you. He graduated in 92. You were in 94. Um, so it was obviously a, a, it was in the family as well. Yeah, so my brother went there. As you say, he's a neurologist at uh, Hadassah Hospital here. And my other memories, I mean, you know, you've got the coach to school. I, I know I've mentioned it in other We Are House podcasts. You know, I used to sit, occasionally sat next to Sasha Baron Cohen on the bus to school and I used to listen to the top 40 on Radio 1 every Sunday and he would kind of quiz me as to what number in the charts certain songs were. Um, I, uh, gosh, so many other uh, memories. I remember playing water polo. I was um, in the water polo team at school. Well, it's, uh, it's funny you mention that because the the archivists, as you know, like to dig out some oh of the gosh. old uh, school reports. But they did, and uh, they they dug out a few things. And uh, you mentioned water polo there. It said that you know you excelled at water polo, and you were actually uh, selected for the under nineteen Southern Counties squad. Um, oh, yes. So well well done on that. But in your early school reports, it actually stated that Elliot is excellent in PE. Um, so I want to know, has this sort of early sporting streak that you displayed stayed with you all these years? I'm pretty sure there are far nastier things on my earlier uh, reports because I, I was a bit <laughs> of a I was a bit of a naughty kid until about until about GCSE time, I think it was. Uh, gosh, no, I mean, you know, I enjoyed uh, sports, but it was athletics, uh, kind of. Um, I think I was doing, you know, 800 meters uh, or 1500 meters. I don't think I ran for the school. Um, you know, rugby. Uh, I remember starting school actually. I'd had a bike accident on holiday in the Netherlands, and uh, I'd uh, I, my 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 leg was I couldn't start playing rugby in the first year for a few months, and then you know because I played football for my primary school, so they put me in the kind of top uh, top kind of you know games there, and um, so when I eventually started playing. You know, I enjoyed it, but I, at the time I was uh, kind of, uh, you know, Sabbath observant. I wouldn't play on Saturdays, which was when most of the games were. So I was kind of demoted to the third <laughs> the C team, uh, which was kind of quite fun, actually, because 
you know, it was tough. And they're like the A and B team, they were like good and everything else. But in the C team, I was like, you know, like almost like the king of the C team. I would like get the ball and like run the length of the pitch and kind of, you know, score tries. So it was great fun. Um, so no, I'm happy you found something positive, but I'd love to know if you found anything uh, well, glowing about well, it. Well, it's funny you say that because you mentioned the naughty streak that you didn't sort of settle down until your, you know, your GCSEs. Um, other reports mention uh, your sort of boisterousness, and um, it it also mentions one teacher saying Elliot is beginning to quieten down, um, and, uh, and and seems that uh, obviously that that saw you through to do very well in your A levels. Um, have you have you kept in touch with friends from from school? So, you know, like for a while, I, I kept in touch. Uh, Lee Peterson in particular was kind of my best friend at school and we kept in touch for a number of years. Uh, but then, I don't know, you kind of drift apart. But then, funnily enough, you know, like now here uh, in Tel Aviv, you know, you meet other old house boys. Uh, I was out with Matthew Salter uh, the other night, um, who was actually my brother's year. Um, I'm kind of friendly now with uh, Richard Binstock, who is a bit couple of years below me at school so you kind of meet other you know old Habs boys and so perhaps you kind of you know shared uh friendship there was um another uh couple of, you know uh from the girls school uh, people that I've met here who have become friendly with so <clears throat> so you kind of you know perhaps drift away from some but rekindle with others so I mean you know you you keep in touch with some over Facebook or whatever it is but but in terms of people that I speak to on a regular basis back from my my time there not so much but you know uh others who i've kind of become friendly with who were who are also old hats boys and girls um you know uh, have become new friends i think what's interesting as a as a non-habs alum um uh, non-habs uh, uh student um is the connectivity that you all seem to have. You know, I went to a regular local comp and didn't have the opportunity to go to a school like Habs. And I think what I can see from not only the VIP alumni who've been on the podcast, but other Habs alum that I do know, and like you just mentioned, that connectivity of the network, even if you've been apart for many years, you're still wearing, you know, your 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 school tie, for example. There is an, a serious association with it. <laughs> so tell me any favorite teachers yeah so um i remember mr hurst uh spanish and french teacher in particular spanish which was kind of my best subject uh, i didn't do it at university but i did a kind of you know let's say uh i did the same level as people doing spanish degree like as modules at university uh and then obviously being in south america i should speak to my children in spanish mm. and um so mr hurst was a great spanish teacher really enjoyed You've got um, a lot to thank for to, to Mr. Hirsch. Yes, indeed. I mean, he wasn't my only Spanish teacher, but he was my uh, he was my favourite one. Um, I mean, there were others kind of funny teachers. Mr. Cabazia taught chemistry. He wasn't my favourite teacher, but I remember he had this thing to explain isotopes, I think it was. And he would say, there was like the same woman, different hat was one of his uh, kind of favourite <laughs> ways because there were kind of atoms of the same element but a uh, slightly different number of something or others anyway uh, mr boys uh, my chemistry teacher sad tragically um passed away uh, way too early a few years ago actually uh, was actually pleased i had the opportunity to go to the um memorial service and um i think it was in st albans and uh, he was not only a great teacher but he was really patient really understanding and i'll never forget that in i, I wasn't in the top i think they had streams so if you were like in the top stream, you were like, you know, the ones that were doing really well. And I think I was in the bottom stream for chemistry A-level. And I remember we did our mock exams, our mock A-levels. And I came top of the class. 
everyone in the class failed, literally failed. Like, and I got an E in my mock chemistry level. And I remember him kind of like being somewhat concerned uh, about it. Uh, I think everything came out all right in the end. And somehow I got an A. I must have, I mean, I did study very, very hard for my A levels. I had a whole timetable doing like 10 hours study a day. And um, for chemistry in particular, I could do like twice as much studying. But I did so badly in the practical. I think I got a D or an E in my A-level practical exam for chemistry. I must have just knocked it out of the park for the theory because I got an A overall. So I don't know how I managed that. Um, but, uh, but Mr. Boyce was great. Mr. Hyde for uh, water polo. He was a maths teacher, but I never had him for maths. And then I actually saw him in, uh, was it 2002? Uh, not 2002. Um, 2010, what was the Olympics in London? Um, uh, it was, was it 2012? 20, uh, yeah, okay, so 2012 Olympics. Um, Mr. Hyde, I saw him there because he was kind of involved with the refereeing of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the water polo. I think those were, for the most part, oh, Mr. Um, gosh, Mr. Holmes, Nick Holmes. Uh, again, CDT, Design and Realisation, wasn't my favourite subject. But I just remember him being a very nice teacher. And I saw him subsequently when I went back to kind of uh, speak at careers days and things like that at Habs. And uh, I think he was another one. Of course, no one can forget uh, Mrs. Griffiths, who was like the Spanish uh, assistant, uh, always coming, always very glamorously uh, dressed. And um, we always used to love to kind of uh, joke around with her and sometimes at her expense. But she was a, <laughs> a, you know, a great woman and a great teacher. So these, uh, these are incredibly wonderful memories. Um, I, I know from listening in, obviously, when we were producing to the John Vincent episode, for example, and uh, Vanessa Feltz's input that um, they sort of lifted the lid, as you say, on the fraternizing, as Vanessa put it, with the other school. Uh, was this true for you, Elliot? Um, I, I can't say I fraternized so much through the gate, if you like. So I wasn't one of those people that would sneak through the gate and meet people. Obviously, you met girls from the girls' school on the coach and at parties and things like that. So there was some uh, uh, fraternizing outside of uh, school hours. But uh, as far as I can recall, I, I was not a kind of daytime fraternizer. You know, I didn't smoke, for example. And I know that some of the kids that smoked uh, would go kind of there and, and share a cheeky cigarette with, uh, with girls from the girls' school who did likewise. And I, I wasn't a smoker or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I think. And, and there weren't so many. You know, I didn't do drama. I didn't do, which, you know, may surprise you. Uh, I didn't do, you know, many of the other things that were all the few things that were kind of done jointly. So, um, uh, so yeah, so I think, I think my fraternizing was, uh, you know, kind of evenings and weekends. Uh, did you, basis. <laughs> you, you kept it as a hobby. Did you, um, did you ever write for Skylark, by the way? Well, you're going to have been this because you've got it from the archives, I assume. But no, I did, I did play chess for the school. Uh, I think mean, I was just about scraped into the chess team. I, was, I played for Barnet under 11s, um, but, uh, and I was number one at Brooklyn Junior School, uh, where among other people, I came up against one Demis Hasapis, who you may know of because he was the founder of DeepMind, the uh, big AI company that was bought by Google. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he was like two or, three, <clears throat> two or three years younger than me. And I was playing him at chess and, um, and he just wiped the floor. And uh, it was quite embarrassing for, you know, you think you're like 10 years old and you're number one and you're playing this like seven year old or whatever he was at the time. And he's he's just just way, way, way um, in a different league. But no, I think I played for the chess team at school as well, just about on one or two occasions. Um, I don't recall writing for Scarlet. Scarlet. Yeah, there was no there was no what archive. Suggest 
There was no archive suggesting that you did. Yeah. I just would have thought it would have been an incredible find to connect your whole career. No, when it, actually, when it came to English, I wasn't really into English. It's, it's funny because, you know, to be a journalist, you'd think, you know, you're really into English and to your writing and everything else. And I was never really into it. And, I, and again, like things like history, I really love history now, but I just didn't have teachers that, let's say, uh, I, um, I was drawn to. Um, although Mr. Moore was quite funny. I remember one time literally stapling my thumb in the class and Mr. Moore saying to me, he's like, Gotkin, you are an idiot, aren't you? Kind of thing. <laughs> and um, actually he took the one detention I had, which was for clapping out of deliberately kind of out of sync uh, in a music class with Mr. Rose. Um, Mr. Moore took, took the detention and it was like the funniest hour I'd ever spent because you had to write an essay and I finished it like in half in like 20 minutes and kind of just had to amuse myself the rest of the time. And he was just a very amusing teacher. Well, there's no, there seems to be no rhyme or reason around this detention policy it has, because as we heard, Simon Sharma had the record for the most consecutive detentions and doesn't seem to have harmed him. No, I think, uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe more detentions means a more successful career. I don't know. Maybe I should have had more and I would have turned out uh, you know, better. So final question for you, Elliot, as we draw our podcast to, the cl- to a close. Um, I understand you're in the same year as the current Habs headmaster, Gus Locke. Yes, um, he joined, I think, in the fifth year. So, so without giving too much away, because he's uh, is he's still in position, shall we say? Um, are you surprised to see him in the role? From what you remember of him, I'm not. Su- I mean, you're always surprised because you just think, my goodness, like someone my age is the headmaster of the school that I went to. It really kind of makes you feel old. <laughs> I think for the one part, um, uh, I was surprised to see him. I mean, this with no disrespect, I think he's somewhat less her suit than he he used to be. Um, uh, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, as a person, I mean, he was a good student. I mean, there's no reason why that shouldn't be, uh, something that he did, but I think it's always shocking when someone, you know, or we're at school with is suddenly, you know, CEO of a company or, uh, you know, or, or, you know, being headmaster of the school you went to. So, uh, there's no reason I have no reason to, to be surprised in terms of his capacity or capability that that's something he could do. But I think as someone that was actually, you know, remembers him turning up at school in the fifth form to think that he's now the headmaster, it's just a very strange thing to get your head around, but not because, you know, he, he lacks, uh, the experience or the ability to, to do an amazing job. Well, I, I guess it reminds us of our age and uh, mortality to some extent. And uh, as, as we, as one final, final, final question, Elliot. Um, obviously, you've had the privilege of interviewing all of these wonderful alumni for Habs through the podcast. Any particular um, big highlights for you or moments you just want to, you know, recount? Um, gosh, I mean, there were a, a number of uh, things that stick in the mind. Um, uh, I think, uh, you know, getting on the wrong side of Vanessa Feltz before we even started recording was, uh, was one that I'm still traumatized. That's by. my favorite, I have to say. My, I've still got that recorded. It's an outtake that, you know, I'll keep in the archive. Yeah, let's, let's leave that one to the side. It was really nice speaking to Rishar. Like, really, you know, you think someone who's kind of on the cover of, you know, well, I don't think he was on the cover, but in Vogue and who's like, you know, in films and, and uh, TV and stuff would be you know, somewhat uh, full of himself, but he was like a really lovely guy and was really, you know, great to speak to him. Uh, and uh, I think Simon Sharma, again, just someone, you know, that that I've heard of. I have some of his books on my shelves. Uh, he was just like so eloquent and, um, and so smart and wise and just really an amazing person to have the opportunity to speak with. So uh, I think that uh, 
I think that not to say that the other guests weren't, you know, wonderful as well. But I think uh, those are some of the things that uh, stick in my mind. Of course, we also had uh, Penny Endersby uh, singing, um, the CEO of the Met Office. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, we, we didn't get uh, uh, Roddy to, uh, to sing, but that's uh, understandable. And I'm not about to break into song. <laughs> either, as, as I can't really remember the lyrics to uh, Jerusalem or to be a pilgrim. So uh, I'll leave it to the others. Well, Elliot, it has been a pleasure to have turned the mics on you and learned about your interesting career in news and media, as well as your time at Habs. Um, I know that the Habs Boys and Girls School alumni department and school management would want me to thank you on their behalf for the commitment that you've shown to this podcast and the professionalism that you've brought to create um, an incredible first season. Um, so Elliot Gotkin, host of the We Are Habs podcast, TV news presenter, and journalist, and of course, Old Habs Boy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And I, I'm not quite sure how to wrap up the end of uh, season one, but it's been great uh, to be interviewed. It's been great speaking to so many wonderful uh, alumni. And for anyone watching, of course, you can listen and watch all the other podcasts uh, from the archives. I think they're on YouTube and also wherever you get your podcasts. So if you want to know more, go to habsboys.org.uk. You can find more about me at gotkin.com. And if you want to follow uh, Habs or me on social media, you've got at Habs or at Elliot Gotkin on Twitter or at egotkin on Instagram. Uh, I'm not quite sure at this point when we'll be back, but uh, if we are, we do hope you'll join us again then. And I uh, hope that everyone is uh, keeping safe and well and all the best for 2022. Take care.